I'm Amy Sandler, the host of the Radical Candor podcast, and we're continuing our series of Radically Candid Conversations. Today, we're so happy to welcome Tiffany Lee, a partner at the law firm Holland and Knight. In this discussion, Kim Scott and Tiffany Lee explore how practicing radical candor can be such a helpful framing when addressing systemic racism. They also talk about why it's so important to actually have those difficult conversations so many of us were trained not to have at work, the importance of metrics and storytelling in your diversity and inclusion strategy, and finally, what we all can learn, whatever industry we're in, from lawyers and law firms working to create more just workplaces. I am so excited to introduce Tiffany Lee. She's a partner at the law firm Holland and Knight. Welcome, Tiffany. Thank you very much for the warm welcome, Kim. I am so honored and pleased to be with you today. It's great. Uh, it's great to be chatting with you. I was very excited to read your to read your post on how we need to be radically candid about race in the law. So we'll talk more about that uh, later on. But I want to I want to start with the fact that we're recording this on Juneteenth, and so I'd love uh, if you can share with our listeners the significance of this day and and some some information about what your firm is doing to. Uh, to honor Juneteenth. Certainly. So as you know, Ken, June 19, uh, also called Juneteenth or Freedom Day or Jubilee Day, is um, the oldest sort of national celebration of the end of slavery in the United States. Um, it marks the day back in 1865 that slaves in Galveston, Texas, were read the federal orders that they were free. Um, so Juneteenth has been uh, celebrated and observed in the black community for years. This year, I think because of the timing of Juneteenth and its proximity to the um, recent police killings of black people across the country, many law firms, including Holland and Knight, are observing Juneteenth as a firm-wide holiday. So um, it's a holiday here at my firm. I personally, as a black woman and descendant of slaves, feel like I celebrate Juneteenth every day when I get up and get to decide for myself um, what does living my best life look like today. So... It's nice to be here on Juneteenth talking about racial justice and um, spending time with your group. Well, thank you. I'd love to talk a little bit about how you and I met and, and how you come to be on our podcast today. Well, my recollection is it involved a Russian bot. <laughs> so I wrote an article that, frankly, I mean, we'll talk about it later, but I wrote it primarily as uh, initially to kind of help myself process what I was thinking about after George Floyd was killed by a police officer in broad daylight. And I was talking to my family on one, on one side about how we were all feeling about that. And then I was talking to my firm leadership on the other side about how we were gonna to respond to that. And I just started jotting some thoughts about, you know, what does this moment mean? How do we, you know, maximize this moment for how, what good is gonna come out of this, et cetera. So I started writing. And I was thinking to myself about, well, what do we really need most in this moment? And I decided that what we most needed was truth. And um, I thought back to having heard you speak on a podcast about radical candor, the principles of radical candor. And I thought, you know, we need radical candor in this moment. And we need bitter truth in this moment. Um, so that became sort of the theme of the article. And it just kind of you know, went from there. The article... I wrote it over a weekend, and then we submitted it for publication. Um, it got picked up for publication, and then I think the, the night after it got picked up for publication, my brother and I were 
driving home from a Starbucks run, and I get an email, and it says it's from a Kim Scott. <laughs> and I say it says that because, you know, I'm familiar, I am in a corporate space where emails have branding on them and signature blocks and firm names. And I get this email that just says Kim Scott. And I said to my brother, I'm like, do you think this is real? <laughs> or do you think someone has like hacked my computer and is playing a cool joke? Because that's what people do in America. And uh, he's like, well, the only way you're going to know is if you respond. So I, I think I waited maybe more than an hour or so and finally decided that the best response would just be, okay, well, what would you say if this was from Kim Scott? And so I wrote, I'm so honored. This is wonderful. And then I put a PS in case it was from some hacker. And I said, if this it was originated by a Russian bot, you're evil. <laughs> it really shouldn't play jokes like that. Uh, that was like, and they put a big you smile. You wrote me back and said, you wrote, wrote back and said, this is me. <laughs> <laughs> I was really, I was really happy to get your quick response. Uh, really happy to read the, the article that you wrote, because I think, very often, when I've talked to lawyers, they're a little alarmed about the idea of radical candor. They're like, oh, that's, that's a lot of truth. Uh, and, and the truth, especially around issues of, of race, is, is, is a hard, as you say, a bitter truth. I was really happy to read your article and to, and to read about the, the ideas that you had for the things that lawyers uh, and law firms can do to help us share, because we're not going to solve this problem if we can't be honest about it. So we'd love to hear some of those ideas here from you about things that, uh, that lawyers and law firms can do uh, to, to help share radical candor in a way that moves things forward. Yeah, I mean, I do think it is going to be difficult for lawyers to fully embrace radical candor. Um, you know, one, one very basic reason is I remember when I was coming into the workforce, you know, my parents telling me the three things you don't talk about at work, race, politics, and religion. Yeah. And now we're in this moment that I hope becomes a movement where we're being told, no, you must talk about race. And not in a superficial, around the edges way, but in a very deep emotional way that may cause you and likely will cause you, and in fact should cause you, tremendous discomfort. Yes. So I think... People are going to resist that, but I think we still have to keep sort of leaning in around that, con that concept because, you know, for me, the idea that you're caring personally about people and allowing them to bring their whole selves is fundamentally the work of diversity and inclusion professionals. I mean, it's trying to create environments where people feel just that, that they don't have to, you know, leave any part of themselves at the door when they walk into their place of business. And the idea of challenging directly and specifically and uh, contemporaneously, which is the other dimension, and how that's actually not a thing to be afraid of, but it's actually something that allows you to build these relationships of trust that you need to have to build a stronger organization. That's what initially impressed me about your whole radical candor approach. And so when I started adding that into how I was approaching DNI, I found that I was having more effective conversations with people about the issues that we were trying to address as an organization. And so just trying to build upon that. And it really changed for me some of the way that people, I think, viewed my role and viewed my approach in that role. And 
and has allowed me to, I think, build more authentic relationships where people know that I'm not coming at them to accuse them of being a racist, a sexist, uh, or whatever, but I'm coming at them to have a conversation about how your behavior and the impact of your behavior is or is not undermining what we're trying to do when we say that our goal is to build a more inclusive organization. Like people can have that conversation. They cannot have the conversation when they think I'm coming at them to evaluate their character and their fundamental being and make a conclusion as to whether they are racist or not. And I think that when I first became the diversity partner for Holland Night, which was in 2008, right before the 2009 massive crisis where lots of people of color in the industry lost their jobs, I think I came at it much more from a sort of an outside observer, judging, monitoring, and then recommending corrective action. And it was a comment from a good friend, frankly, who I don't even think he viewed it as a put down, but it struck me. And he referred to me as the conduct police. Wow. And I'm like, that is not what I'm trying to be. (laughs) I had to kind of sit with that for a minute and think about, well, what would cause him to think that way? And why are people not returning my calls? And, you know, and just changing the approach. So, you know, that happened before. But now in this moment, in, in, in terms of racial injustice and trying to address these, those things, it's really applying those same principles that we have to really be looking to care for our people on a very personal level, nurturing their sense of humanity and inherent dignity and worth, and allowing them to bring their whole self to work. So, you know, that was sort of the way that we approached how are we going to respond to this? That has to be part of it. And then what are the things that we do intentionally or unintentionally that we need to challenge, that we need to start talking about our processes, our methods of doing things, our, the optics of the things that we do, the language that we use in certain situations, the, you know, the way that we value people based upon timekeeper status. All of those things are either going to move us forward or they're going to hold us in this very dangerous place, I will say, where we're not maximizing the moment. Yes, I think this is really a, a, a moment in, in which I feel more optimism than I have that things can really change. But, but I also am acutely aware of, of how risky it is that things, that things go backwards. And I, I think so much of what you say resonates so deeply for me. Like, there's nothing that I want to be uh, less than to be a racist. That's the last thing I want to be. And yet, I must acknowledge that I sometimes, as just as a result of, of the society in which we live, will do or say things that are racist. And, and only when people around me are willing to point it out to me, and crucially, I am willing to hear that I've made a mistake, that I've done something wrong, can I make it right? Uh, and, and all of the burden of, of telling me when I've done or said something that is racially unmindful, or, and that may even be a euphemism when, when I've done or said something that is racist, when those have 
around me are willing to tell me, only then can I, can I improve. Uh, and all of the burden shouldn't fall on people of color around me to tell me. Everyone should, should speak up. So thank you so, so much for that. It's really, um, really important to, to hear from, from you. Another question for you, how the principles of radical candor, sort of caring personally and challenging directly, you've said a little bit about how much they've helped you in your conversations at work, but how, how do you, when someone has said something that is deeply offensive to you, how do you find it in your heart to care personally about them? I mean, if somebody says something to me that is, that is sexist, it's really hard for me to care personally when I challenge directly. Well, I don't think it starts at the moment of that encounter. Like um, a few years ago, I did like a train, not a training, I did a talk with our executive partners who are like the people that run offices of the firm. So they have a very significant role. They impact a lot of people on a day-to-day basis. And they were kind of like, well, give us some guidance on how we can, you know, help be more supportive of what we're trying to do around diversity and inclusion. And one piece of advice I gave them was that, you know, they needed to, you need to develop what I called street cred before you need it. Meaning the caring personally is happens every day. And you, it's part of building the relationship so that when that difficult conversation has to be had, the person is not in doubt about whether you're in a relationship. They're not in doubt about whether your overall goal is to do what's best for the law firm. They're not in doubt about whether you're a person that comes to them in a spirit of good faith and truth and integrity and respect. Um, They're not in doubt. Because if if a person is in doubt when you are trying to have that difficult conversation where you're challenging them directly, they're going to conclude that you are coming at them with all the bad stuff. Right? So developing the goodwill before you need it. Um, and in one particular instance, the, the person was describing a situation where they had to go in and tell a person, a traditionally underrepresented lawyer, that they were being let go because their productivity has not, had not been what the firm would have expected. And it was the first time they had ever crossed the threshold of that person's office. Wow. And I said, that, that conversation is just going to be bad. Because they don't know you, you're coming at them with a difficult message, it, it's just going to be bad. So what should you be doing? You should be regularly checking in with everybody on your team and talking to them about how are they doing and how was their weekend and just little five-minute conversations because every time you do that, you are building what I call street cred, which was just my term, but I think it's what is a parallel to your whole idea of caring personally about your team and what's going on in their lives and, you know, how are things going? So, I mean, I think that's the way you approach it. And then when you have to have that tough conversation, you can say, hey, you know, I'm your friend or whatever the word you want to use in that moment, but I got to talk to you about something and it's going to be difficult. I usually tell people, we're about to have a difficult conversation or I'm about to show you some tough love. I give them like the warning, the headline. (laughs) And, um, but I always reaffirm the fact that, I'm here because I just can't let this go as your friend, or I just can't let this go as, you know, a person who wants you to be successful as a practice leader. And then, you know, if they have a track record with you where they can believe that statement, then you can have that conversation. 
if they don't have a track record with you where you, they can believe that statement, then I think it's going to be a hard conversation. Yeah, yeah, so important. These, these human moments, I think, are so important to, to building the trust that you need in order to have these hard conversations. What, what are some of the ways that, that lawyers and law firms, like how can we, how can we use the law to, in, ad- in addition to these human moments, which, which are so critical, how can we use the law to address racial injustice with radical candor? How can the law help us? Well, I mean, I think, you know, lawyers, you know, we, we have a tremendous opportunity. Historically, if you think about how people talk about the legal pro- profession, they, they describe the legal profession as sort of the guardians of justice, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Because we have a monopoly. Well, kind of. A monopoly. Um, there are also sort of alternative legal services providers now, but in, back in the day when I started, um, we had a monopoly, and we were always told that that monopoly also creates an obligation to protect the rule of law and to do pro bono for people who would not have access to justice but for our pro bono efforts and to get involved in the community. One of our founders would say, you know, you have two obligations. You have an ob- obligation to do good and you have an obligation to be somebody. In other words, stand up for people that cannot stand up for themselves. That was the mantra that I got coming into Holland and Knight. And I think that this reaffirms all of that, that the legal profession is uniquely positioned. Now, we're not the only people that can address some of this because issues of racial justice are impacting healthcare, financial services, you know, every institution under the sun. But lawyers are in a unique position because we can go to court and we can file briefs and make arguments about why something is unconstitutional. In other words, cannot proceed. We can advocate for legislation and not just, you know, sign stuff, but actually, you know, point out when a a statute is unconstitutional in the way that it's written. And I think that that's the unique role that lawyers can play in this moment. That's not to say they shouldn't also be doing the other stuff, community service, the self-reflection, the financial contributions to charitable organizations that are working in this fight every day and having this tough conversations. But, you know, no one else can do the legal work yeah. that's going to be yeah. required to dismantle some of the embedded, systemic, whatever word you want to use, racism that exists in America, um, other than lawyers. And so for me, when I was thinking about this and I wrote it in my piece, is that, you know, it's an opportunity, but it's also an obligation for us to get involved in this work now more than ever. Yeah, I think that's so important. The notion in particular of systemic racism and the things that the law can do to change the system, to change the system, to create a more just system. So, so important. The things that not just the law, but lawyers, people have to do it. The law doesn't do it by itself. Yeah, and providing access to justice. I mean, it's great to have a justice system, but if you can't access it, what's the point? Or if you can access it, but because you don't have the ability to afford a lawyer and you're up against, you know, someone that does have the resources to afford the lawyer, then the justice system is there. It's, but if you can't it's, access it's, it's it, unjust, actually. Yeah, it's, it, it's unjust, right? If people can't access it uh, in an equitable way to advance certain causes and redress certain injuries. Yeah, 
Yeah, and the, and and public defense attorneys are so overburdened, and it's it's one of the I think about this all the time. It uh, that's got to change. It's got to change. But it's, you know, I think all attorneys are sort of in a little in a little bit overburdened. If you're working in the public system, I mean, I I do some work on our. Um, we have a professionalism panel here where I work in Miami um, that comes to the courts and they basically appoint lawyers to address issues that aren't quite a bar complaint. So it's not unethical behavior, it's not a professional liability issue. Usually it's like a civility issue, trying to like encourage more civility within the profession. And the last complaint that I got on a panel with um, three other lawyers and it was a judge who had referred a young female prosecutor Mm-hmm. who I would diagnose the problem of her tremendous error in judgment as having been just completely buried. You know, yeah. having, you know, if you're a C prosecutor, which is like the lowest level, mm-hmm. you probably have three to 300 to 400 cases. Wow. You have all of this discretion. Prosecutorial discretion is an amazing thing. You have all this discretion. You have all this pressure to get cases resolved. And I don't know how much supervision you have or not, but I will tell you the impression that I got was she did not have enough mm-hmm. and she did not have enough support. And that also becomes an access to justice issue because yes. she is exercising that discretion in a way that is impacting the lives of the, of the defendants and she's ill-equipped to do it. Yes. So it's not the same burden as a public defender, but it has an impact. Of course, yeah, it's such a good point. I had never thought about it from that from that perspective. Yeah, both sides, both sides are. Yeah, and I hadn't either until she came before us and she was crying, literally, explaining why this situation happened and what had been building up in her life. Mm-hmm. And I came away feeling really bad for her. It seems, again, this may be me being optimistic, but I, it does seem to me the tide, the tide is shifting and people are more open to seeing, as you just pointed out, the, the, the injustice that is inherent in the system and, and to fix it. Uh, and, and people, as you, said, as you said a minute ago, people are more willing to take your calls right now. In fact, I would guess that people are calling you right now, asking you to do a lot of, a lot of unpaid labor, actually, uh, on their behalf. So, so why do you think now? Why, why do you think the tide is shifting now? I think the tide has been shifting slowly for a while. You know, if I think about 10 years ago and how we were talking about, you know, diversity and inclusion issues, we weren't really talking about racial justice. Mm-hmm. as so distinct, right? But we were kind of having these polite conversations about it. You know, what are you doing and what efforts are you making? And isn't it great that we're still making all these efforts? But every year the scorecards would come out and they would basically say, you're the same, nothing has changed. And then people started having more focused conversations and asking more about, you know, results. Well, let's talk about the results. And let's talk about the things that really matter. So I was noticing like a shift in how, for example, clients were asking us about our diversity efforts. When I first started this job, they would just ask us, tell us about what you're doing in DNI. And we'd write these long narratives about our affinity groups and our scholarships and our, you know, training and our this and that. 
And then I remember the first one I got was from a client who wanted the relationship partner to pledge that within three years we were going to change the demographics of the client service team. Wow. Whoa. That's music to my ears. Any more like that in the pile? <laughs> and, uh, and so at the end of the time was no, but it's changed. And so now clients have realized, oh, we're focusing on the wrong things. We need to be asking questions about who's on our service team, who's getting the credit for our work, who are the relationship partners, what are the demographics of your leadership? Like it's much more a metrics-based discussion. Mm-hmm. And I think that in some ways that's given us an advantage because we have a very metrics-based uh, senior management team. <laughs> and so that's the way they think about things. And they want to know what are the results. They don't want, you know, the rhetoric. And so I think that it's given us a little bit of an advantage around that. So that conversation was shifting for the past five to seven years. And then you have this tremendous event that happened. And now everyone's eyes have been opened. Everyone is agreeing there's a problem in every institution in America not now. Not everyone agrees with that, just to be fair. But, but a lot of people. A lot more than used to agree. A lot, yeah, a lot more than they would have agreed to that statement a year ago. Mm-hmm. And now everyone's like, we have to fix this. This cannot continue. We must, we must do something about this. And so there's this urgency of now that's going on. I also love watching the younger generation and how they've responded to this. Like within yes. my firm, I mean, I have to just give a shout out to the associates because they are, they've made it very clear, we have to address this. We have to address this at Holland and Knight. We have to be involved in addressing this in the communities that where we work. We have to be, you know, a leader in this, which we've always had a reputation for being a leader in this. But I love hearing those, uh, getting those emails from the associates. They are always talking about solutions and ways to get involved with things. And that's kind of what gives me a lot of um, encouragement about this. I mean, I have to give a shout out to the associates in uh, our DC and Tyson's offices who have been sending some of the best, most insightful feedback to me about the action items that we're proposed to take. And because they're saying, this is not the profession I want to be in. Yeah. This is not what I signed up for. And then others of us who've been in the profession longer are thinking, this is not what I want to leave to my protégés and mentees. Yes. I want them to have it, you know, a different path than I had. And so you have this collective desire to change this that I think is going to motivate action in a sustained way as opposed to kind of having this moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you, you, you touched on a couple of really important things. One is metrics and the other is action. I mean, at business school, we were always taught you get what you measure. And yet for so long, people resisted measuring these, these problems. Oh, you know, we don't want quotas. But I think we've got to, we got to look at the numbers. And, and when, you know, if, if, if you were looking at your profit 
profitability and your profitability were shrinking, you wouldn't fix the problem by fiddling the numbers. You would fix the problem by fixing the problem. <laughs> and we've, we've got to look at the, we got to look at the numbers and see where there's a problem and, and then fix it. Right. I agree with you. And you know, we got to make sure we're looking at the right numbers. Yes. So, you know, I kind of alluded to that in my piece in terms of recruiting versus retention and promotion. Yes. I think recruiting is great. I think we should be working really hard to recruit and attract more people from traditionally underrepresented backgrounds into the profession, period, full sentence. However, I think we should be working equally hard to de-bias our system so that the entry of those people into the profession doesn't just become a revolving door. Yes. And, you know, they come in feeling great about the opportunities here. They run up against the same roadblocks that people have been running up against for the past, you know, 30 years. And then they go and flourish somewhere else. It's like, no, we have to address the aspects of our profession that impact retention and promotion. And we have to be developing the metrics around those things in the same way that we're developing metrics around who we recruit. And how yes. many of X, Y, and Z do you have in the firm? Yeah, I, I think that's so important. Otherwise, it's just like pouring, pour, pouring water in a leaky bucket, right? It's people are just going to leave because they have terrible experiences. Mm-hmm. They don't get promoted. They don't get treated with respect. Uh, and who wants to hang around at a place like that? Um, and people have options. I mean, people yes. have so many options nowadays. You know, you... You know, so many people get trained in the law that never, ever bill an hour. They go on the business side or they yes. go into a consulting firm or they go into an accounting firm. I mean, there's just so many options. So I remember when I started law school, you know, most people, their goal was to be in big law. You mm -hmm. know, you were a success if you could get a job in big law. Now, I think people define success in a variety of ways. And they, there are a lot of options out there. And if you're a talented person of color, you have options. Yeah. yeah. And so you have that, those options mean you have choices. And you can choose to turn down some, an opportunity that maybe 30 years ago you would have never thought of turning down. Yeah. And it's those choices that are that are insisting that people change, that, that the system change. Otherwise, you're, you're not going to get the best talent. So think yeah, or you're going to have a big gap. You're going to yeah. have a big gap, and you're not going to be able to serve your clients. Yes. You know, I yeah. mean, the model requires that you have people at different levels and sort of working their way up through the levels is the model. Yeah, yeah. So you may, you may have to change the model. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. So what, what are some of the things that your firm is doing to change the model to, to address racial injustice uh, at your firm? So we have spent a lot of time with, at the senior leadership level talking about a response. You know, we're a 1,400 attorney firm and with a lot more um, staff as well. And so our number one priority is really supporting our staff, our, all the employees that work at Holland and Knight. So you know, giving them a, a safe environment to talk about these issues that everybody told us you're not supposed to talk about. <laughs> How are you feeling about what's going on outside your door? On June 9th, we had a town hall meeting via Zoom uh, where we gave people a chance to just say, how are you feeling? How is this affecting you? What personal experiences do you want to share? We weren't really sure it was going to work in a virtual environment. 
but we had over 1,300 people dial in for over an hour, hour and a half. And wow. uh, to his credit, our managing partner, Steve Somberg, kicked it off with what I thought was one of the best, uh, most candid stories about how he's feeling about what's going on and how much hope he had as a young man growing up in New York in a very integrated environment, how much hope he had for the country and how over the course of his lifetime he is now feeling more discouraged and disillusioned about, you know, race in America. And I think hearing that from him at the start was very powerful to people because you know, this is the managing partner. This is the, the guy at the very top of the pyramid. So when he allows himself to be, I guess what you'd say is vulnerable enough to say that I'm discouraged and disillusioned. But he also said, you know, but we can't stay here. We have to use this to motivate action and be, you know, more active and double down on what we're trying to do in diversity and inclusion and, you know, really ramp up our pro bono. In other words, let's let this discouragement fuel our action as, you know, individuals and collectively. I thought that was really powerful. And then we had um, several colleagues, we had three colleagues, then share their personal experiences with either a police encounter that could have gone really bad for no apparent reason other than their race, <laughs> and uh, one young associate describing an encounter on the street in Chicago where he's walking with his wife and child in a stroller and ha basically being told, you know, you're not welcome in this neighborhood and uh, the neighborhood is his neighborhood. And then oh the person gosh. basically harassing his child in the stroller. <laughs> and I think that those stories were powerful because part of the difficulty in processing all of this is you would like to think, first of all, you'd like to think this is not happening in America. <laughs> yes. But if it's happening in America, you'd like to think that it's happening over there, out there, somewhere that is not really impacting you. Right? So you can feel bad about it, but you don't really have to own it. But when you hear that it's happening to the partner in the Fort Lauderdale office or the associate in the Chicago office or the staff person from our operations and operations center, you then have to accept that no, 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 no. This is here. What we're talking about is not out there. It's here. And I think that was an eye-opener for people. We had one gentleman who started our firm less than a year ago and uh, raised his hand and wanted to speak. And he shared a story that, you know, I was moderating the town hall. After he spoke, I just felt like we should just um, end. The mm -hmm. story was so ripping, and it was about how one of his family members had been killed by the police in a silly little situation that had gone wrong my recollection is that he was there and his story was about how the family never recovers. The mother can never recover from that, you know, losing her son, despite whatever, you know, interventions you put in place because you can never make sense of it. Yeah. He had been, he's been at the firm less than a year. It made me very happy that he felt comfortable enough in that forum 
to raise his hand and share that. But, you know, you can't make sense of that. No. So we're doing a lot around that, like giving people spaces. I think that we're going to now have some of those types of town halls at the office level, within practice groups, within affinity groups, within teams, you know, continue that indefinitely. So people say, no more town halls. We're also trying to do more structured conversations. You know, the other thing is, you know, giving people free-flowing opportunities to talk is important. I think that what we haven't done well is kind of balance out those discussions. So we've very been very open to the conversations from the people who are outraged. <laughs> but this week I've been reminded by some of our colleagues, you know, look, what if you have a law enforcement background? What if you have friends that are wor working in law enforcement? Then part of this is your fear for their safety, you know, that they are going to be, um, you know, deemed to be one of the bad apples and uh, that it's going to impact their careers. I mean, I have one friend in the firm who's like, you know, our family isn't trying to encourage my brother to get out of the profession of policing because we think it's the most dangerous thing to be in right now. And then the, the brother is saying, but this is my calling. I feel like this is my calling. And uh, so, it's, you know, creating a lot of um, communications like that. So I think we need to bring those voices into the conversation as well. I mean, I think the more... The more perspectives you get into it, the better, the greater the likelihood that we're going to get to some shared understanding of how we should be thinking about this issue. So we're now preparing for our Miami office town hall that I think is scheduled for next week, and we're trying to be more intentional about getting some additional perspectives presented. So that's interesting. We're also, um, we, had, we had started this before, but now we feel like it's actually much more relevant is um, our diversity council had developed a toolkit around how do you have a courageous conversation? Like how do you talk about race in a way that is appropriate in the workplace? So we're going to have some of those courageous conversations with a facilitator to try to tease out more how, not only how people are feeling, but how are our systems and processes either undermining or accelerating and supporting what we're trying to do. We've talked about sort of doing more in pro bono in an intentional way. I think I already touched on that. Um, really partnering with sort of some of the like-minded organizations that we've already been doing pro bono with, but ramping that up and knowing in advance this is our goal with that. Like this is how much, you know, from a financial perspective we want to contribute. This is how much we want to contribute in in-kind services. This is how much we want to contribute in lawyer hours, which is sometimes the most valuable thing for them because, you know, they want to monitor the policing reform legislation. They don't have the resources to do it. Well, guess what? We have the resources to do it. We have a powerhouse lobbying team in D.C., and within the span of, you know, three days, we were able to mobilize a group of 10 people to monitor that legislation. So those are things that we can do to help, you know, these organizations. It's also a um, growing movement that you'll probably read about soon. It's called the Legal or Law Anti-Racism Alliance, and it's basically going to be a consortium of law firms who are all saying, you know, we can do things individually, or we can really leverage our resources and impact by doing some things collectively. So that group has kind of been percolating up out of this organization that does a lot of coordinated pro bono work within law firms, and uh, they've been, you know, they've been organizing themselves. I think in the next week they plan to sort of announce their formation, their charter, their initial membership, 
And then within our firm, it's like our managing partner said, you know, we've been working hard at this for many years, but we still can do more and we still can do better. So part of our approach has to be kind of holding ourselves accountable to our colleague for focusing on the internal. This isn't all about, you know, the external piece. You know, you, what's going on at Holland and Knight, really? So kind of doing a top-down review of how our systems and policies are either inclusive or may have some aspects to them that need to be revised, revamped, overhauled, tweaked, whatever, to be more in line with and get us closer to being the truly inclusive organization that we want to be. So we're calling that sort of our accountability and transparency piece. And necessarily part of that is going to have to include looking at leadership and making a leadership competency, for lack of a better word. In other words, you know, you can think about DNI as being this thing over here that the Diversity Council does, or you can think about it as being something that every person at Holland and Knight has to have some active role in. And that, I think, is going to be an important shift in how people think about it. That's amazing. That's amazing. That is, a, that is an impressive list of things you're doing. And I, I particularly love this, the combination of storytelling and metrics, as I said before. I think the storytelling is so important. And as you were saying earlier, it's something that used to be discouraged. Your father said there's three things we don't talk about at work, and one of them is, is race. And recently my father said to me, oh, don't admit that that thing you did was racist. And I was like, if I don't admit it, then I can't change it. So, so I think it's, it's really, and I know we both love our fathers, but we're, we're taking a different approach. What are some of the metrics that are helpful uh, in, in achieving diversity, equity, and inclusion goals? So I think I told you that I became the diversity partner back in 08. I remember like just my personality. So you tell me, okay, Tiffany, you're gonna be responsible for this. I first have to read everything about that. I have to process that, then I have to create a plan, and I have to put a chart, and I have to do all this stuff. Right. And then we can meet. So I go to meet with my manager partner to kind of talk to him about my three-page action plan. (laughs) Now, if I were to pull it out now, I would say it was very low on the action, but it was long. (laughs) And um, about, you know, five lines into it, my managing partner looks at me and he says, let me just stop you. (laughs) And he's like, I'm really not looking for rhetoric. I'm looking for results. So you should take that action plan and you should kind of prioritize it. And you should think about the things that are going to get us to the results that we want. And if that means that there's stuff on there that we've done for, you know, 30 years that you don't think we should be doing, you should say so. If we're spending money on things that you don't think we should be spending money on, you should say so. But I'm interested in the results. Now, at the time, I'm talking to a managing partner who I've known since I was like a second year, and I know we have a good relationship, but I'm also a non-equity partner who's just been given this tremendous opportunity to be of service to the firm, and my three-page action plan has now been reduced to a corner of the page (laughs) in like three minutes. So I'm feeling a little bit like, uh, that's not how I thought the meeting was going to (laughs) go. It's rough. 
But it was a powerful moment because it was like, okay, it's important to know how the person that you are reporting to is viewing the situation. And I learned that I needed to be thinking about it the way he was thinking about it, a very metrics-focused and results-focused. I learned that if I'm dealing with him, I need to be prepared to speak quickly and get my important points out first, because <laughs> you may not get to your fourth point. And it just changed my way of thinking about it. So I kind of went back and I looked at the action plan and everything on it. I was like, okay, do I think this is going to something we can develop a metric around? Do I think this is something that's going to be results oriented? Now, there's some stuff you still have to do because people just need to know you're doing that stuff. And it's more about, you know, the sort of the glue. You know, some people, people just need to know that you're bringing it, that there's a programmatic focus to your diversity and inclusion efforts. There's a consciousness raising to your diversity and inclusion efforts where you're trying to bring in you know, speakers that have topic conversations to raise awareness. But you have to know in the back of your mind, what are the metrics I'm looking at? Is it partnership promotion? Is it the demographics of our partnership classes? Is it the hours of our traditionally underrepresented associates as compared to our white male associates? Is it the number of people in leadership? And whether those leadership roles are in the practice management structure versus in the professional development structure. I mean, you have to kind of think all of that through, but there are lots of metrics. And I, I learned a lot from our managing partner. I think that part of the reason that we work well together is he's very metrics focused. I'm more, I'm not good on the metrics. I'm more, <laughs> I've now learned to love metrics. But at the time, I was more about, I had a more of like a, my gut, my gut. A narrative, me, but, a narrative. You're a storyteller, yeah, like, like me. What, and more of the, what's my gut telling me is the right thing to do, you yeah. know? Yeah. Um, and so combine those things and it becomes very complimentary. Like, I don't yes. think I'd be as successful if I didn't know that I need to have metrics. Yes. And I don't think that, because the other thing that happens in law firms and why metrics are so powerful is if I can lead with metrics, or a study, or, you know, you know, a great sort study from the Harvard Business Review is just a weapon that every diversity professional needs to have. <laughs> because, because when you get up there and you say something, people are naturally going to want to challenge it. But what about this? And what about that? And if you don't have something that says, all I know is Harvard did a study <laughs> over 10 years, and this is what they concluded, and they're the really smart people, and we all agree that the Harvard people are the smart people, <laughs> then we can just, you know, cut it off and just get right. on to it. It's called the H-bomb. Yeah, metrics are really powerful. Um, I love that. And I love the metrics you came up with. They're really good. And you combine metrics and story, and uh, you win. So let's talk for a minute about intersectionality. Uh, how, how does intersectionality fit into these conversations? Well, it's, it's kind of always there, right? So mm -hmm. even when we're not talking about it, it's there. So if you, like, you think about our women's and our efforts around gender and gender equality, and if you ask um, our women of color who work here, they will tell you that intersectionality is all that it's about, right? Yes, yeah. Um, I will tell you as a black woman, there, there are times you have experiences where you don't know 
if it's your gender or your race. Like, you know, what is, what is it that's triggering that person? Yes. But you know something is triggering that person. And so it's always there. And so finding a way to have conversations about that um, is really important. And finding a way to make people understand that your, your experience when you are operating on one dimension of diversity, say you, Kim, mm-hmm. is necessarily different than mine because I'm operating on two dimensions of diversity, which adds a layer of complexity to my experience is just a necessary part of the conversation. Yeah. Um, I don't think we've figured that out yet, how to, how to do that, but I think we need to do more work on that. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, I think, and I think the, the complexity is probably logarithmic. It's not like it's twice as hard to be a black woman as a white woman is probably 10 times as hard. I don't know what the number is, but we could develop yeah. a metric later. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's, it's so much harder. And I think also uh, there, there's this tendency to think, well, I, you know, I as a white woman, I'm just going to focus on gender because that's hard enough. But I can't I can't think about gender and exclusion of, of race uh, in a, without thinking also about homophobia, without also thinking yeah. about religious intolerance, like like all of these things are connected and. And the, the core attitudes and behaviors that hurt me are not so dis- I was I was giving a presentation recently and a, and a black man in the audience said, look, radical candor for you has to look and feel very different from the way that radical candor looks and feels for me. It has to. Um, although we were both experiencing bias and prejudice and bullying in different ways, he was experiencing it very differently very differently yeah. from the way that I was experiencing it. And yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, I've, I've talked to um, colleagues like that and about that. And I think about it from the standpoint of, you know, if you're a white male at Holland and Knight, you have white females in your life. Yes. I think that's a fair assumption. You likely yes. have white females in your life. Likely. So, so when it comes time to think about how a white female associate may be experiencing Holland night, you can make that connection. Yes. Similarly, if you're a white male at Holland night, and really I'm saying Holland night, that's where I work. Anywhere. Yes. It's not specific. And you're dealing with a black male. You can't necessarily get the black part without some effort, but you can get the male part. Mm-hmm. And so you can bond over sports and this and, you know, all this other stuff, all that stereotypical male stuff. Yeah. But, I mean, stereotypical, I say that because I'm big into sports, but nobody naturally thinks I'm going to be talking to them about sports. Right. So that's an overgeneralization. So, but if you're that same white male and you, you encounter Tiffany Lee, and you're mm-hmm. trying to find the point of connection, you're like, she's black, she's not a white woman, uh, and you get uncomfortable. Yes. Yes. You know? And so I realized that, and so I used that to my advantage. One, sometimes I want you to just sit in that uncomfortable nest for a little bit. 
Yes, embrace the discomfort. Because I think we're going to have to embrace the discomfort more as time goes on. But sometimes I love to just immediately tell them, let me make it easy for you. We're going to connect over sports. <laughs> <laughs> and I just immediately talk about sports. And it's, you can almost see the relief. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, we can talk about something. <laughs> you know, I remember when I did my um, interview for one of my uh, OCI, which is on-campus interviewing when you're in law school. Mm-hmm. And I would, if, if the guy was there, I started talking about college football as early as I could. You uh-huh. know, what are your passions? College football. What do you look forward to in life? College football season. <laughs> Because they, I just want them to really know, no, you can connect with me too. You yeah. know, because everyone is looking for that connection. And they're trying to figure out, well, how am I going to connect with you? And if they don't figure it out, they, it makes them very uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. And I think what you said is so profound. Sometimes you got to let people sit in their discomfort and sometimes you're going to step in and make them comfortable. Tiffany, I know we only have a couple more minutes of your time. So I know it can be even more difficult over Zoom to talk about race. What can we do to find the courage to talk about race over Zoom while we're still working remotely? I would say a couple things in response to that. Number one, I think that uh, our experience with a town hall virtual Zoom meeting with 1,350 plus people for an hour and a half validates that people understand that it's more important to have the conversation now than it is to wait for the perfect environment, right? Ideally, we'd want to be having these conversations person to person where you can see the body language, the emotional reactions, and all that other stuff that comes into communication. But we don't have the luxury of waiting. Um, So we have to just sort of push through and understand that it may, let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, The good is to have the conversations now. And then I think also being mindful that the only conversations we should be having aren't necessarily about race. Part of caring personally is just touching base with people who may be feeling disconnected right now. Part of caring personally may be, you know, having weekly meetings that you used to have monthly, just so you can scan and see who's never showing up on Zoom, who's never turning on their video, likely me if it's a Monday, (laughs) who's never speaking up. And then you know then who you need to follow up with, right? I worry most about the people who really had to hustle when we were in the office to maintain networks, develop networks, develop work streams, follow up with people, pop by their offices, schedule lunches, coffees, all these other things that they cannot now do. And so I've been spending a lot of time talking with our diverse associates, particularly about how do you stay relevant and visible even in this remote environment. And it's not a stream of emails. You know, I mean, associates love email. Yeah. It's not a stream of emails. It's finding ways to connect in and having a a conversation of value with people that need to know that you're still here that you're still eager and willing to work and contribute and be part of the team, et cetera. So last week I was strategizing with an associate 
who had been reaching out for work with emails. And I said, your next outreach needs to propose something that you think would be of value to the team that you are willing to organize and will be delivered via Zoom. What do you think that could be? And she came up with this great idea of a business development training via Zoom for the associates. I'm like, that's perfect. You know, it meets all the criteria. It shows you're here, it shows you're willing to work, it shows you're thinking about the right things, and it shows that you're, you're still thinking about how can I contribute and offer value. So I think those things are very important. And, you know, one thing I've had to sort of commit to do is turn my video on. I know that's very important, but I have real, like, psychological issue about video. And, you know, I've, I've developed some rules around video. But I do think it's important that I show up at least every other video. But so not what everyone. You, what are your rules around video? I'm interested. I'm going to. Well, my first rule around video while working remotely is that I have video free Mondays. Uh huh. So if you schedule a Zoom with me on a Monday, do not expect video. <laughs> I love it. And, and even during the rest of the week on bad hair days, I always reserve the right to be video off at least one other day. And you cannot challenge me. Like, it's so funny. We had a um, business development session with this guy, a consultant. And he did a business development session with our Black Affinity Group. And he's like, oh, can we come on 10 minutes early and just get comfortable in the room? I'm like, you can get comfortable, but I'm having a bad hair day, so we will not be on video. <laughs> so he comes on, and he's like, I can't see you. And I'm like, that's correct. <laughs> He's like, are you going to turn on your video? And I said, um, no, not today. And then it was like five minutes of awkward silence. <laughs> it is so good. You, gotta, you have to create your boundaries. I think that it's very yeah. important that we know what our boundaries are, how we're trying to make the most of these moments. And so those little silly little rules are just sort of my way of exercising, I think, like autonomy and agency even when I'm working remotely, which I think, I think is just good for my mental health. Yes, really, really, really important. Um, thank you. Well, Tiffany, so much wisdom in such a short amount of time. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing and, uh, and, and helping us to move towards stories, metrics, and action. I love it. I love it. Let's do it. And I'm very honored to have been here. I'm glad that the email was not from a bot. <laughs> and, uh, I did live in I, Russia, but I am not a Russian bot. Big thanks to Tiffany Lee. So many great tips on how Radical Candor can support your diversity and inclusion strategy. And I can confirm Kim Scott, not a bot, though it rhymes. Well, if you listen to our first Radically Candid conversation with Dr. A. Breeze Harper, you learn that we, the Radical Candor team, we're going to be working with Dr. Harper to become more anti-racist leaders. And we're thrilled to share you have a chance to learn from her as well. Our friends at Torch are offering a four-week course with Dr. Harper called Becoming an Anti-Racist Leader, Strategies and Action Steps for a More Inclusive Workplace. The course starts July 15th. Again, it's a four-week course. And you can head to the Radical Candor podcast page, radicalcandor.com backslash podcast. Find the link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. In the show notes, you also can find that article Tiffany and Kim discussed and we put in some Harvard Business Review articles for you as well. The Radical Canner podcast is produced by our director of content, Brandy Neal, hosted by me, Amy Sandler, and music by Cliff Goldmacher. 
we'll see you soon.